We'll turn our attention now to uh, <clears throat> to the Word of the Lord, assuming all hearts are free. Anybody have anything else you feel you need to do? Anything else? Any song that needs to be sung? Anything at all? Amen. Absolutely. I, I would rather there be kids running around. I'd, I'd rather it be that way. You know, if in a, as an adult, you can't set aside something and block out the noise of a kid and focus on something else, <laughs> you, need to, you, you need to work on that a little bit. And that'll go along a little bit with what we have on our heart today. But I'd rather have, hear them running around and milling about. And, and maybe as a parent, you're a little bit embarrassed. I, I would rather have that because what's the opposite of that? They stay away from church. They never come to know the Lord. They never get saved. And they may live a long life and they may live a prosperous life. But guess what? If they never know, never come to know the Lord, they're going to find out at the last, at the day of judgment, they're going to find out, well, either when they die or at the day of judgment, whichever one happens first, that really that was all for naught. Because none of that's going with them in this world. All that temporal stuff that we spend so much time trying to accumulate, none of that's going with you. Instead, you need to be seeking after something that even when you die, you take it with you. That's what's important. Like all this temporal stuff is, is fleeting. It's, it's here one day, it's gone tomorrow. Something could happen and, the, and this whole country get wiped out and all the houses remain and people are going to come in and they're going to find a, a, a bunch of houses that are already prepared that they can just take up residence in. If you don't believe that can happen, just read the Bible. It's happened in the Bible several times. But there's no promise that we have in this world, but we want to, we want to, we do want to say that that is a wonderful thing to hear kids in the church. And uh, I made a statement to somebody earlier, the, earlier this week, or well, I guess today's the earliest this week you could possibly be, but last week uh, I was having a conversation with somebody and uh, you know, this, this, a church where you don't hear kids is the sound of a dying church. It is. Now, they should be trying to reach out to the area around them and their friends and their neighbors and their loved ones and all of that and bring them in too. But there's no, if you don't have kids in your church, there's no life there, is there? And so we're thankful for all the young ones that are, are here today. So don't, don't get down because of them. And I'm going to promise you something. That once I get really rolling, I don't care how loud they scream, I don't hear them. <laughs> I can't tell you how many days Amy said, did you hear the kids today? And I'm like, nope, no, I didn't hear a thing. What, what'd they do? <laughs> and especially on a day like today, because I've got sinuses today. <laughs> and you say, well, why do you say it that way? You have sinuses every day. No, when I say I have sinuses, I've got sinus issues going on. So it's going to echo in my head a little bit today. So don't don't worry about that. Let's focus on the Lord today. Let's focus on, on Jesus who suffered and died 
on the cross of Calvary that we might have the opportunity to be saved, that gave a universal call of salvation to everyone that would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. Uh, that's, God, that's God's will for humanity is that none would perish and that all would be saved. And if you're here today and you don't have that, our prayer is <clears throat> that first and foremost that you'll have the knowledge that you don't have that. And I'm not talking about the knowledge of me telling you that. I'm talking about the knowledge within yourself that is shown to you and revealed to you by the Spirit of God. And then having that knowledge that you'll make an altar somewhere. This altar here is open. It's never closed. If you need to come up and pray, you come and pray. If you need to pray, if you need to make one where you're sitting at, make one where you're sitting at. If you need to make one at home, make one at home. If you need to literally go in a closet, close the door because you need to be alone and away because for whatever reason you may think you're embarrassed or whatever, then just do that. But whatever you do, when you have that knowledge that you're not safe, make an altar somewhere. Dalton is one of our newest members here. He made an altar in a shower, in a communal shower, and got saved. I've heard of people getting saved in submarines, under the ocean. I mean, you, you name it, and people have been saved there because God is limitless. But we want to put limitations on him a lot of times. And so as we get as we go forward this morning, that's what we would just we encourage you to do. If you don't know the Lord today, you need to know the Lord first and foremost. Because some of the things we're going to talk about this morning, they're going to be for those of us that have known the Lord for a while. But nevertheless, it's something that we need to examine, especially with the uh, the day that it is, it's the last day of 2023. And isn't everybody looking forward to 2024, an election year? It's going to be awesome, isn't it? <laughs> everybody is reservedly smiling because they know what's coming. One of my, one of my favorite, I like to follow him, he, Matt Mitchell on YouTube. He's this, he's this dude down in Alabama. He does hilarious videos. He does SEC roll call and things like that. He put one up for the end of the year, and it was 2024 and 2023 having a conversation, and 2024 saying, really, do you have to leave? <laughs> and in a nutshell, that was what the whole conversation was around, and it was hilarious. But... Nevertheless, we want to turn our thoughts and our focus to the Lord. So if all hearts are free, we'll, we'll take up our scripture reading this morning. And we're going to take our scripture reading from the second, uh, from the second book. I'll spit it out in a minute. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. There we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to read the first 11 verses out of that chapter. This is the third time I'm coming to you. This is Paul. Oh, sorry. I don't think we have that in the book. 
I know what song you're talking about because Sister Elise South, or Elise, I can't remember her. Go ahead. Amen. Yeah. Amen. God bless you. Appreciate this, Sister Kaylee. Good song. Anybody else? Anything else? Anything else? All right. If not, if not, we'll turn our attention to the Word of the Lord. We're going to read the sec, uh, out of Second Chronicles chapter 13. Beginning with the first verse. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. And this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned and to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which is to you word, uh, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. 
For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God to, uh, toward you. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves. How that, the, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. But I trust that ye shall know that we are no rep, not reprobates, now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we would, not that we should appear approved, uh, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. For we can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and ye are strong, and this we are, and this also we wish, even your perfection. Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. And so I'd like to stop right there. And I'd like to, to take for a thought this morning, you know, given, you know, the day and everything, moving forward. Uh, I'd like to take this for our thought this morning, moving forward. Now, a lot of times you can't move forward without looking back, can you? <laughs> because if you, those that, as the old saying goes, or the old adage goes, and with the you know, mistakes that I made, we read the, 2 Corinthians 1 through 11, but as the old adage goes, you know, those that don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And so we look back a little bit here, and Paul's writing to the church here in Corinth, and, and he's referencing back, isn't he, to them about the earlier letter that he had written to them and the occurrences that were going on there within the church. And there were those in the church that were not too satisfied with the letter that Paul had sent initially. And so they had gotten into this, you know, back and forth with Paul. And he, and he illustrates this in the third verse here in this chapter. And he says, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but is mighty in you. And so he was saying, okay, if you guys need proof that it is Christ speaking in me, then I'm going to lay out the proof. And he does that throughout the course of this letter. And so as we go here and we're going to look uh, in Second Corinthians at the examples that Paul gave, because this is really why Paul wrote the second letter to the church at Corinth. In, ver in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Do we again, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, some as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? In other words, do we need somebody else to vouch for who we are in the Lord? Uh, for you guys, or do we need you guys to give us your stamp of approval? And so Paul, he writes there, and he says that. In chapter 5, in verse 12, he says, For we commend not ourselves unto you, but give, unto, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may, may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance, not in heart. 
And so he's just outwardly saying, you know, there are those among you that do that, don't they? They glory in appearance, they appear righteous outwardly, but inward they're full of dead man's bones. And so he's writing that to this church, and he's saying you need to make sure that you mark them uh, as you take it from some of the other writings, which cause divisions and strife among you. Uh, because they're not working for the betterment of the Lord. And so, you know, sometimes before you move forward, you got to address the things that's happened in the past. And so they've called Paul into account. There's some of those in that church, maybe a Hymenaeus or a Philetus that's there in that church uh, that has done this. Uh, in the seventh chapter, he writes this, and he says, he, he writing to the Corinth church there, he says, Receive us, for we have wronged no man, uh, and we have corrupted no man, we have defrauded no man. In other words, he's saying that the offense that you feel towards us is unjustified because we wrote that first epistle on your behalf for your betterment so that you may abound more in the Lord. And as a, and as a church, I mean, I think that's what we've got to really wrap our minds around because it's so easy for us uh, to, to focus on the news and what's happening in the world around us, uh, that we sometimes lose sight of the fact that God's greater than everything that's going on around us. You look at that, you get depressed, you get down, you think you're alone. You know, that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. Why is it that God instituted a church? Because that way, like, my, like believers can come together and exhort one another and lift one another up. You know, when you come into the house of the Lord, if there's a Hymenaeus and a Philetus there, and, and they are uh, constantly causing divisions and strife in the church, um, then you know that they are not working on the behalf of God. They're, God does not sow division. <laughs> Satan is the worker of division. All you have to do is go and look at what he did in heaven and go and look at what he did in Eden and then look at what happened to every time he's mentioned after that and he's always sowing division and strife everywhere he goes. And so we have to look at this and we have to say, we have, and he says, we have not wronged you, we have not corrupted you, and we have not defrauded you. In other words, we've done nothing for you to be angry or to question our commendation Toward you. In other words, our standing before you is intact and it is legit and there's nothing else you can say about it. And you can look at the way Paul wrote this letter here to the church at Corinth and you can take an example. And I'm going to use this as an, a metaphor because uh, this is something I recently learned and, and I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated with it. But even though Paul never saw this animal in the history of his life because it wasn't over on the continent that he lived in, but Paul was a bison apostle is what I'm going to call him because when there's a storm that was brewing on the horizon, the interesting thing about bison is that they don't turn away from the storm. They turn and they go, they know the quickest path through the storm is to go directly into the storm. And that's completely opposite from what our nature is, isn't it? Our nature is when we see a storm on the horizon, to run away from it, to take cover, to shelter down, to get away from it. Now, I'm not saying that if there's a tornado tearing through town, run toward the tornado. 
That defies the common sense and logic that God gives us, doesn't it? <laughs> but what kind of storms do bison usually encounter? Big snow, big, big snowstorms, right? Well, God's equipped them to be able to survive that bitter cold. And so they know that they don't have to be afraid of the cold, but they want to be out of the storm. So what do they do? They turn and they head directly into the storm. Now, you think about this. When the apostles were there on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus had sent them off ahead of them after the feeding of the 5,000 and there arose a storm there on the Sea of Galilee and their boat was tossed to and fro uh, and they were all in a tizzy and a panic wondering what is going to happen to us. We're all going to die. And then getting to the song that Sister Kaylee sung, uh, there comes the Lord walking on the water but because they forgot that He's God and they forgot what they just witnessed Him do with five fish and twin and a few and a couple loaves of bread. They they just watched him feed 15 to 20,000 people. They forgot that he's God. But they look at it and they say, Well, here comes a ghost on the water or an apparition on the water, or here comes some terrible sight. Instead, who was it? There in the middle of the storm, it was Jesus walking toward them and reminding them that you don't need to focus on the storm, you need to focus on me. And instead, uh, what was Peter? do? He looks at the Lord and he says, Lord, bid me to come to you. And he steps out on the boat and he takes off walking on the water right to the Lord. But then he's got distracted, didn't he? And that's what the world exists for. Why does CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and all of these entities exist? They're all there to get your attention off the Lord. (laughs) They're the noise from the storm trying to divert your eyes away from the one that can deliver your soul. The one that can write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. I don't want you to... You don't need to pay attention to that stuff. You know, when Peter was focused on the Lord, he was walking on the water. When he paid more attention to the storm, he sank in the sea. But the Lord still grabbed his by the hand, didn't he? And pulled him up. And so Paul doesn't avoid this contentious issue with the church at Corinth. As a matter of fact, what does he do? He leans into it, doesn't he? Because what happens otherwise? Let's say he ignores it. Then it just gets worse and worse, and worse, and it's never addressed, and it's never discussed, and it's never come to a resolution, and the end of it is way worse than what it was meant to be, isn't it? In the 10th chapter, he writes this, and he says, But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. In other words, they were saying they were just doing it for themselves and not the Lord. 
For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, Paul writes. And in the 11th, 11th chapter, he follows this up. And he says, For I suppose uh, I was not a whit behind the very chiefest apostles. In other words, he's saying, Take all the apostles that remained in Jerusalem. I'm on their level. <laughs> so they were obviously talking down the apostle Paul. And the the Apostle Paul's having none of it, is he? Yeah, I don't know what it is that we need to deal with in the past, in 2023, in order to move forward into the next year. That God may, able to, may be able to use this church to make it abound more and more than it has in the past. But I know that's what his desire is. And so here we look at this, and he says... Uh, and Paul writes this, he says that he was not a whit behind the very chiefest of the apostles, but then he makes an acknowledgement here in the sixth verse. He says, but though I be rude in speech. In other words, what's Paul saying? I'm going to bluntly tell you the truth, isn't he? Uh, and Paul says, I'm not going to sugarcoat the truth. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm going to tell you the truth 100%. But we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. And then finally, in the 12th chapter, in the 11th verse, he writes this and he says, And I am become a fool in glorying because ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing... I am behind the very chiefest of apostles, though I be nothing. And again there he says, I'm on the same level as the apostle. But now I want us to touch on this for a second. Now we use that verse. And if we look in this 12th chapter, Paul had his own things, didn't he? Paul had his own temptations that he dealt with. He's not Christ after all. There's only ever been one man that was perfect and sinless. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray, hadn't we? There is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous. There is none that seeketh after God. And so all of that being acknowledged, there was one perfect man. But still, Paul's directive to them is that they would be perfect. And we're going to touch on that to close. But Paul writing about himself, he says this in the 12th chapter. And now this is going to get into the land of conjecture a little bit. It just is because we don't know what this is 100%. Now, let's touch on this. In the 6th verse of the 12th chapter, Paul writes this, referring to himself. Remember the, the, the verse that he said, and this is what we're talking of. In the, in the, this is the main thing that we want to drive, a, drive home here. It's Paul writing to the Corinthians in the 5th fifth, fifth verse of the 13th chapter, saying, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, and prove your own selves, and know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. In other words, so Paul's directive to them is, you guys want to examine me? Examine yourself. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You want to you examine me? You want to throw shade at me? 
You need to examine yourself. And that's perfectly in line with scriptural self-examination. Lamentations 3.40 Let us search and try our ways and turn again unto the Lord. Jesus speaking in Matthew 7.5 Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye and then thou shalt see clearly the cast out the moat out of thy brother's eye. And so in other words, don't run around worrying about somebody else when you got problems going on in your own life. Take care of your own problems and your own issues and get those straightened out and then you can help somebody else down the road. Who is that going to be? I don't know. The Lord knows. You have to leave some you have to leave some things up to the Lord, you know. As we tried to talk about in Sunday school. And so we look here in the 6th in the in the 12th chapter here. Paul writes this. He said, for though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. You hear how he says that? Oh, I've got got a desire to boast of the things that I've done. That's what it means to glory, to boast of himself. But I don't want to be considered a fool. (laughs) And so Paul's controlling himself, isn't he? Restraining himself. Remember what he was before he got saved on the Damascus Road. I profited in the Jews' religion above that of my brethren. Why? Because I was more zealous than they were. Why was he more zealous than they were? Because it fueled his pride and his ego, didn't it? And the more it fueled his pride and the more it fueled his ego, the more zealous he was, even consenting to the death of Stephen and persecuting the church of God wherever he could find it. Because among his brethren, he was lauded for it. You see, sometimes we can't do an analytical left-brain approach of things. We have to look at the whole picture in context, don't we? But you know, that part of Paul was still in his flesh, wasn't it? And he acknowledges it here. We would like to say that when we got saved that all of that's crushed. You know, that's why you have to, you have to subvert the flesh so that the spirit can, can conquer. <laughs> that nature's still in your flesh. And Paul says that here. He says, though I desire to glory, look at all the things that I, the Lord has done for, used me for in service to him. I shall not be a fool for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seemeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. In other words, what's Paul wanting here? He's saying, I don't want anybody to think of me more highly than they ought to, even though I am not a very whit less than the chiefest of the apostles. He's saying, I don't want you all to exalt me. I'm doing what I was commanded to do by the Lord. Now, let's look here in the seventh verse. He says, Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. Now, here's the question to end all questions. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? 
I don't think it was his physical afflictions. I don't think that those impaired him all that much, even though we can go and read it, it, about how mu- many things that he suffered while in service to the Lord. I think God saw him through all of those things. Now, don't get me wrong. Thrice he was given 39 stripes, I believe. 40 was a death sentence. He would have bared the scars from all of that. Don't get me wrong, but he had some thick skin, didn't he? He had developed some very thick skin from all of that. What was it? Now, as I said, we're going to get into a little bit of conjecture here. Pride is something that is innate. Just about anybody can be susceptible to it, can't they? But within his flesh lied, and we're going to look at it here. Remember, what did he do? What did Paul do to feed his ego and his pride before he got saved? Well, he persecuted the church of God, didn't he? He was consenting unto the death of Stephen. He was willing to get engage in ruthlessness, wasn't he? In order to feed that. And so he had a, an imagination that sometimes would work against him, I would per- suppose. And so the, you know, there may be some of you here today who struggle with this and say, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be this, but I have all of these thoughts and all of these ideas. Paul probably had a lot of really evil things that he thought of. And you say, well, yeah, I don't know. I want to get there. Read the way Paul's writing to the church of Corinth here. When I come, I will not spare. I want to use words of gentleness if I were in your absence, but if I were with you, I would use sharpness. The ruthlessness of Paul, he's, it's still there, but it's redirected toward the service of the Lord, but it, and that prohibits him from acting on it, doesn't it? But you know what it does is it keeps in check the pride. Now, I'm not sitting here, and I'm not saying that that's docked. I'm not saying, hey, this is 100% a fact. I told you beforehand, this is a little bit of conjecture. I didn't think it was anything physical that did it for him. I think it was a spiritual thing that that kept that pride in check, that as God used him and used him and used him, and he abounded more and more and more and more. That thorn in the flesh was there to buffet his pride. And I think that's what he says here. Listen listen to what he says. The whole purpose of the thorn in the flesh, the whole purpose of it, was lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations. In other words, he's acknowledging all the things that God's done through him. And he's saying, lest I would be exalted above measure and and love the attention more than the Lord. Why did Paul write most of the New Testament? He was the most motivated of the apostles in terms of spreading the gospel and committed to him 
was the care of not just one church, as in the case in Jerusalem, committed to Paul was the care of the all the churches <laughs> outside of Jerusalem. And so he had a lot on his plate, didn't he? And so here he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there is given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, uh, lest I should be exalted for above measure. Now what's the word lest mean? Well, if you look it up in the 1828, for, for that, I don't think that fits here, but the other definition for it is for fear that. And I think that fits most of the time when you read the word lest, what you could really replace that with is for fear that. And so let's reread that right there. And for fear that I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, for fear that I would I should be exalted above measure. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Paul's desire is that he'd be seen just a humble servant of the Lord, even though in his flesh there still lied that propensity for pride, didn't it? And so God had allowed Satan to send a messenger to buffet him to keep that pride in check. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. If you're here today and you're saved, if you're not satisfied with the grace of God that He gave you when you got saved, then you need to get back down on your knees and pray until you get to the point where you're satisfied with it because you're only going to get saved one time. And the thing that you think may be holding you back, it may not be a thing that's holding you back. It may be there for a purpose to keep you in check and in line. And sometimes we look at these things and we say, Lord, remove this from me. And Paul did that. He said, I, bes I besought the Lord thrice or three times that he would remove that thorn in the flesh from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for thee. That thorn in your flesh has a purpose and a point, and I allowed it to be there, and it will be there until you leave this world. And Paul strove, didn't he? And that's what we should look forward to as we look forward to another year. Strive toward the prize and the high calling of our Savior, Jesus Christ that the gospel may be spread far and wide. I know we talked about this morning that blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I'm going to tell you right now that no nation is Christian based on founding... This is my pit. This is my personal belief. No nation is Christian based on founding documents. A nation is Christian when a majority of the people in that nation are Christian. When that ceases to be the case, it's no longer... I don't care what the founding documents say. When a majority of the people in that nation cease to be Christian, it ceases to be a Christian nation. And you don't have to agree with that, but I'll stand on that till I die. Because how can a nation be Christian if the people aren't? Because nations are comprised of people. 
And so that's what Paul says here about the thorn in the flesh. And he says, therefore I take pleasure in my infirmities. You may look at the things that oftentimes hold you back and lament them, but Paul said those things, like the thorn in the flesh, those are the things I boast about. Those are the things I boast about. So now we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up. His, what was his directive to them? Let's go and close it out. He says this. In verse 9, he says, For we are glad when we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, and this also we wish, even your perfection. And so he's saying, We want you to be perfect. And then he comes back around in the 11th verse and he says, Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. But now what does that mean, be perfect? As we already said, there's only been one perfect person that ever lived in the history of humanity. What is he saying here when he says be perfect? Because we can really let our minds run wild over that definition, can't we? We can take a worldly standard of what is perfection. It's flawlessness. It's perfect. It has no imperfections at all. That's Christ. If you're here today and you're lost, He's the only perfect one that ever existed. That's why He was a suitable sacrifice for sin on the cross of Calvary. It's why it's in Him we place our faith and our trust because His death wasn't warranted, but it was necessary and it was vicarious to usward that we might be saved through His suffering and that we might miss out on the wrath of God through His having the wrath of God poured out upon Him. And so what does he mean when he says, be perfect? I want to touch it over. We're going to go to 2 Timothy, and we're going to answer this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to go down here to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Paul writing to Timothy. And he says, in the 14th verse, he says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, Listen to what he says here. You want to be perfect, you've got to put some effort behind it. You've got to study. You've got to pray. You've got to meditate on the Word of God. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect. Does that mean that the man of God never committed a sin in his life? No. As we said already, all have sinned and come short of the glory of the Lord. What does he mean here when he says that thou may be perfect? And this is what you need to wrap your head around. He isn't saying that you'll be flawless. You're flawless in the sight of God because when He sees you as somebody who's been saved, He doesn't see you, He sees a son. So what does He mean when He says that you may be perfect? That you may be thoroughly furnished. Now what's that saying? 
that you may be thoroughly equipped, that you will have all the tools in your belt, if you were a tradesman, to completely do the job. That's what his desire is for us. Because why? Because we are ordained unto good works after we've been saved. What do those good works do? Those good works testify of the glory of God in heaven. Jesus Christ of the Sermon on the Mount, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That they may thoroughly furnished unto all good works works. We'll close it out by this saying this. As we think about our, 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 our this next year, think about this. James, show me thy faith without works. James is not in opposition to Paul like so many believe. But show me thy faith and I will show thee my faith by my works. And so and moving forward, Reconcile the past and then strive for the glory of God into the future. That's what we need to do. If you're here today and you're lost, first and foremost, you've got to get saved. You've got to get that worked out. Find an altar somewhere, as we stated in the beginning. You've got to get under conviction, though. But Paul told those at Mars Hill, that if they would just happily seek after Him. Now, I don't think that that means accidentally. <laughs> but you've got to seek after the Lord if you're going to find Him. But He's not very far away from any one of you. As a matter of fact, He's so near unto you that once He begins to work on you, He will draw you to Him. But you gotta find you gotta you gotta find somewhere to make an altar. You gotta find somewhere to decide it's time to get things right. And then we move forward. Brother Williams, if you've got a song.